And he goes, right there. I'm like, oh my God, yeah, that's a mistake. And he said he begged John Lennon to do another take. And they did. And John Lennon said, are you happy? And he said, yes. He goes, great, we're using take one. <laughs> of course, of course. The first time I met John Shanks, we were both performing at the Cleveland Indians baseball stadium for 80,000 people. He was playing with Melissa Etheridge and I was playing with John Cougar Mellencamp. That was September 2nd, 1995. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame concert for the Rock Hall. And everyone from Springsteen to Bon Jovi, John Fogarty, James Brown, Aretha Franklin, Hart, Melissa Etheridge, the Almond Brothers, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, Sheryl Crow, Bob Dylan, Chuck Berry, and the Pretenders from Ohio, and many, many more were performing that night. Now, the next time I met John was six months later at AM Studios in Hollywood, where he was co producing and playing guitar on a Melissa Etheridge record in Studio B while I was in the back room recording with Rod Stewart in Studio D. Now, the cool thing was weeks later, I was asked to record drums on that Melissa Etheridge record with John and then went on tour with her and John for three and a half months later. I continued to make records and tour with her and John for many years, but John eventually stopped touring to focus on his songwriting and producing. Listen, the bottom line is John loves being in a band. I mean, he's a band guy. That was always his dream, just like mine when we were little kids. Now, today, he tours, co-writes, and produces records with Bon Jovi when he's not writing, recording, and producing records with other artists and bands. John is a six-time Grammy-nominated songwriter, a Grammy-winning producer in 2005, and also a guitar player, of course. He's produced and or written 43 number one hit singles, 86 number one hit albums, and sold over 60 million records. People are lucky if they sell 600 records now. Some of the artists he has worked with are Melissa Etheridge, Lance Morissette, Michelle Branch, Joe Cocker, and Rod Stewart. Glad to say that he had me play on those records. The Doobie Brothers, Keith Urban, Santana, Fleetwood Mac, Robbie Robertson, Take That, Steven Tyler, Cheryl Crow, Celine Dion, Miley Cyrus, Sting, Van Halen, come on, and Bon Jovi, of course, and literally hundreds of others. John, I mean, you'd love to do it all. You like to write, record, produce, touring, all of it, and different styles of music. But it started with your desire to play guitar in a rock and roll band like the Beatles and Led Zeppelin first, right? And that how it all started? Yeah, I mean, growing up in New York, I'm the youngest of three, and it was the records between my parents, what they were playing in the front room, and what my sister and brother were playing in the back room. So, And my room was in the middle. So I was hearing you know, Hair and Frank Sinatra and, you know, uh, the Fantastics and Man of La Mancha and, and all the and Streisand and all this Broadway and uh, the American Songbook in the front room and, you know, Cole Porter and all that. And then Revolver. And I mean, it list goes on. You know, I remember vividly hearing Elton's first record or Cat Stevens or Cream and it was interesting because it would, there was always something, because I was listening, I was always listening. And so there would be something that would perk up my ears and I would walk down the hall and what is this? Oh, sweet Judy blue eyes. Okay, got it, you know. So there was a lot of that music in the house. Um, there was a piano in the house and there was uh, an acoustic guitar, which I 
would play piano. My brother really played piano. I mean, it was classical yeah. and went to Juilliard. And I was like, I would kind of sit down and listen. I had big ears. I was always listening and playing records and sitting between the speakers and changing the balance and, you know, with Beatle records and going, oh, wow, the drums are on one side or, you know, I could, and started to figure out harmonies and just as a, like a toy as a kid at four and five, you know, grabbed a tennis racket and was pretending to be, you know, John and Paul and George and bouncing on the bed, singing, you know, first few Beatle records. I vividly remember that and bringing that to school and jumping on a table, you know, well, anything, anything that was this. So, and then what happened was when I found the guitar, I remember seeing the Stones movie, the Altamont movie, you know, the Get Your Yaya's Out record. And that movie and seeing Woodstock and uh, Monterey Pop, those movies, you know, those that's all we had visually back then, unless you could go. Those were profound influences on me because I could, uh, you know, see, oh my God, that's a, what is that guitar? Or what is he playing? Or Alvin Lee, you know? And all these, and I was like, oh, what is that red guitar? What is that wood guitar that Keith's playing? Or certainly song remains the same. I mean, I went to see it in a theater, you know, multiple times. No internet back then. No. So, you know, we would, you know, and there was a commercial that would advertise a Kiss concert. I would just, you know, I was like, okay, it played at 326, you know, and so you'd sit and hopefully they'd run it again. And, you know, it was just this beginning. And and listen, my my father at the time worked at ABC and uh, would bring home ABC Dunhill records, you know, free records and a lot of the, and plus others. So the first Steely Dan record, I remember, and Albert King, BB King. And some of that was in the house already, but, you know, when you hear Live at the Regal, BB King, you know, Albert King, you know, Cold Feet, and you start, you know, so I was like the blues and, and Lightning Hopkins for acoustic wow. blues stuff. Jimmy Reed, it was like, oh, Jimmy Reed was so important for me because it was, you know, in E, first position, boom, 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 boom. You know, so when you're, you know, 11, 12 years old and you're trying to figure that out, it was like, okay. And then that's it, off and running with acoustic stuff because we had that. And then eventually saving up to buy a Strat. You know, at Manny's, I went to Manny's, but there was a teacher at my school at the time who said, you know, they're having a sale at this other store and $237 (laughs) was a, it was my 76 natural strat that I pursued a couple, it's probably 20, yeah, $3,000 for that guitar, 3,500 or what, you know, but I stripped it. And then I eventually put a humbucker pickup in it when I moved. How old were you when you did that? 14. Oh, you already doing it. See, that's what like, like a Fogarty. Five-way and, switch. You know, no one is Van Halen did that. You guys were like scientists. But I did the humbucking thing when I moved to LA, you know, when I was in, so that was now 11th grade. So I played single, you know, just the stock yeah. strat. Who influenced you to do the humbucker thing? Was that it like. It was kind of. Jimmy Page or. I think it was, it was the idea that. You know, when you play a Strat and you use, obviously, distortion pedals or a little delay, which I got was like a memory man. I remember I got my memory man and an electroharmonics like a big muff or something. And you get a lot of ground noise. You know, obviously, you know, so you're in your little apartment and you're trying. Great thing about those two pedals is that I could play along with records in my room 
but play it really quietly. So while everyone in the house is sleeping, I'm playing, you know, David Bowie live or, you know, song remains the same or the earlier Zeppelin one, Zeppelin two and play along with them, but really quietly. So I wouldn't piss anyone off really. So the humbugger thing obviously came later when I was like, oh, this bucks the hum. This gets rid of the hum. And so that's, that's why it's called a humbucker. You know, it was like, oh yeah, right. Did you, like, I mean, I mean, New York City was so vibrant, you know, on so many levels. I just had this visual, you know, the piano, the thing. Your parents probably had cocktail parties and all kinds of interesting people came through that. You know what I mean? They're smoking cigarettes back then. Because my, my, I grew up three hours out of the city and a lot of the New Yorkers, because my parents were New Yorkers too, they'd come up and it was that scene and I was thinking, this must happen every day in New York. You know what I'm saying? Well, and my your dad was at ABC. Yeah, my well, my dad before that had produced the Merv Griffin show. So he was the executive producer. So his job was procuring talent, you know, going to all these clubs at night and finding these great up and coming comedians and, and singers. And so, you know, he would have these big parties at our house and it was, you know, the comedians that were there, it was pretty staggering. And, you know, I remember meeting Dick Gregory and, you know, George Carlin and uh, Dick Sean, and it was just endless. And then there was the, the singers and there was always someone in that crowd who was an exceptional piano player who could play any song. And they'd all sit around singing show tunes and, you know, drinking and smoking. It was the Mad Men era which was great. You know, it was, it was insane and toxic, <laughs> inappropriate most of the time, you know, but it was, um, but it was also exciting. There was something for me, it was like that sound of, you know, the hum of people and music enticed me. Time to go to bed, John. I don't want to go to oh, bed. Yeah. And I'd wake up in the middle of the night or for me, the middle, and they'd be going at it. And I would just lie under the piano. I just sit there and yeah. so I was like with my, you know, I just remember sitting under the piano and listening to these songs. And wow. so, yeah. That's a big influence. Everything you said, man, is like, first of all, it sounds like you came into life with this curiosity because when you're starting to, at that young, you know, switching left and right, you know, I mean, you already had in you, but you, all of it came together. But not like today though, I mean, like, this is a tough question. I hate when people ask me this. Today, is it touring or the studio? I mean, you like both, right? You've got to like both. You know, it's funny. I was having a conversation with a friend on the way down here. Today, it's today. Like today. Today. Like yeah. being in the present moment, you know, yeah. and not worrying about touring, not worrying about what's coming up or what, what I've done or where I'm going. And, uh, of course, I... Watching the Wheels comes on the radio, the John Lennon song. And it's like, that's the perfect song to express that in the sense that detaching from it all, like, mm. you know, what does it all mean? So for me, what it all means is I'm trying to get to this place of it's doing nothing in a sense. I know it's, I'm getting Zen here, but it's in the sense, the more I do nothing, then I'm staying out of expectations. I'm not worrying about, am I going to get mine or you know, then I don't get to fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't get, if I'm staying in the moment and in the day, and then I'm, you know, what are the expectations or planned disappointments, you know? So the, the less I'm worrying about that session coming up or the writing thing, or what's going to happen to the record or what's going to happen, you know, with the, the tour. And so, you know, so then when I do show up, cause you have to show up, 
<laughs> that's about life. You know, yeah. you have to be accounted for and responsible, you know, in what we do. Yeah. Otherwise, we wouldn't be been able to do it as long. What's the point? <laughs> well, but also people are counting on you. Yeah. But then, you know, listen, you and I, in a sense, are in a service business. There's the joke where, you know, sometimes you're just the tambourine player. And then the, the joke is, we'll play the shit out of that tambourine, you know, be the best tambourine. player. <laughs> so a lot of times our job is to show up and sometimes facilitate a session or a writing session or be of service to that person. So be a healthy conduit, a catalyst to bring out the best in that person. And you and I, we've literally been on stage together where we're supporting an artist. Yeah. We've been in the studio where we've got their backs so they can fumble and fall and make mistakes. And we're like, we got you wherever you want to go. That's what producing is. You're not only doing that. It ain't about you. It's not about, as I say, it's not about me. It's about we. I mean, you have to deal with the artist and each one is quite different. And that's your talent. I've seen you in the room, but you're dealing with every musician. Everybody in that room is the best at what they do. And you're the guy, you have to step out of yourself, but you're not a pushover, never a pushover. You push John Shanks, he's going to push back. But you were meant to be a producer because you know how to serve and lead. You're like a team player and the team leader. Well, there's times to push and there's times to let things flow. I can do a lot by doing nothing at times. And then... It's interesting because now it's my studio that we're, I'm in most of the time and you don't want to waste time, but what's interesting about songwriting or making records, you know, when things start taking a long time, it's because you see people's, I don't want to say bullshit come up. You see their insecurities or their fears. And, and sometimes it's really important to, especially now you know, we're not on tape anymore like we used to be. So that was a performance. We had to be like on, like, where do you want me on the click? You know? And yes, there is a bit of that still time. Time is so important, you know, where, how you push it or relax on it. It's, but the, the other thing is giving somebody the dignity of their process, but also moving it along because of digital recording you can overthink something to the point where nothing happens. Or <laughs> I see people, they're like, well, you know, and I'm like, we can mute it. We can erase it. Go for it. Dare to suck. Dare to dream. You ever have anybody go like, well, can't you fix it? Well, yeah. You can't. As With tape, we couldn't, especially drums. Oh, my God, the pressure is like, you, got, you really need a full tape. You can do a few fixes, but with Pro Tools. Listen, I've had it where the click is going. I was recording this band in like in the 90s and, I'm, and, you're, and the drummer would stop. But the band is, I'm like, but the click is, and it was a great take. I'll let the cowbell go for another two minutes. And he's looking at me through the guys like, I'm like, no, my buddy, we're going to punch in on this take. So I'm like, sorry, we're going to keep going. Because there was a beautiful energy that was happening and he got into fear and a doubt. And just because he missed a fill, you know, I remember talking to Keltner and he said, well, if you listen to the last fill going in to the last chorus of whatever gets you through the night, I make a mistake. I drop like a stick and I yeah. fumble into the fill. I'm like, there's no way. He goes, yeah, listen to it. I go, I've heard that song a thousand times, you know? 
And sure enough, so I sat with him and we played it. And he goes, right there. I'm like, oh my God, yeah, that's a mistake. And he said he begged John Lennon to do another take. And they did. And John Lennon said, are you happy? And he said, yes. He goes, great, we're using take one. (laughs) Of course, of course. (laughs) So, you know, there was something magical that happened. So yes, the idea of Pro Tools, but you know, yes, I'm recording three of your takes. And then we quickly, you and I go in the room and we go, and you go, you know, I really like the fill going into that, maybe that fill. And we just quickly, it's boom, 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 move on. You know what I mean? Because you're an instinctual player. You know the song. We Maybe we played it a couple of times. And, and then once you get it down, then it's the idea of, okay, execution. You know, and I, I'm guilty of it too. Again, again, let me play it again. And you're, because you're developing a theme, you're developing a sound, you know, and sometimes whoever the engineer is recording, you know, I can't worry about him. Like, oh, sorry, this is taking too long. Or I'm sorry. It's like, no, our job is to play it well. And as I'm playing this, whatever this is, after we've cut a basic track, so either there's the quick fixes that the bass player makes or that I'll make as a rhythm player, or I'm going to jump away from that. But my experience is that the the times that the singers, male and female, the soonest the song is written and recorded is the best because that's when they're emotionally connected to the lyric. That is when it's present on all of our minds or the singer's mind. If you use like, have a nice day, I'm just going to this Bon Jovi song. That was the day we wrote that song is the day he sang that song. First cut is the deepest, Cheryl Crow. She's like, we should do a cover. Okay, let's go do it. When? Now, right now. And then acoustic guitar, mandolin, a little drum beat, sing, sing, sing. Excitement, sir. That's the day she sang it. That's perfect. We got it. And so, I mean, there's the climb, Miley Cyrus, boom. You know, so the soon as you can get it down, the better. Okay, what about this now? How do you, I remember you calling me, telling me, I'm like, are you friggin' kidding me? Van Halen. Now you're dealing with some real complex, you know, it's a band. It's not like an artist. It's a band. And there's obviously a lot of complexities in the personalities. You're a fan. Eddie Van Halen, top three guitar players of all time. Hendrix and him reinvented guitar. Who does that? And you're just in awe of them as a fan, but you're the producer. How do you negotiate and how do you deal with what's the process of dealing with that complexity? Well, you find out what their routine is. You know, you find out what their uh, work ethic or work work routine is. And those guys, Wolf and Alex and Ed would rehearse. They would get up at like 530 in the morning. It was crazy every day. And they would run through songs up at Ed's house. At 5150. And so their work ethic, it's always like, why is somebody that person? Yeah, because <laughs> he's up before you playing every day. And, and he stays up later too. Yeah, but they were real. It was interesting. They were morning guys. My experience, when I was around them, they were morning guys. Okay, so how it started was uh, I said to Ed, like, he's like, well, I want to take some old songs that never got finished, songs that never came out, rework them. You know, the pressure was really on Dave, you know, in a sense, because he was writing new top lines to all this, some of this music that had, that had been around for a minute. Some were new, but some were reimagined. They were all reimagined, but 
you know how fans get. They're just like, it's yeah. like, you know, they love to go on the internet and fucking yeah. talk about this shit. Especially that band. That's an easy target. Well, in the sense that like, oh, that was, that was from, you yeah. know, the Starwood 77 and it was down in diapers and it never came out and this is thing and you can't touch this. And it's like where any great songwriter always takes stuff from other songs that maybe haven't seen the light of day. I do it, you know, like, oh, I didn't use that line in that song lyrically. I can, that'll work here. Or a lick, you know, well, that girl in your know, record never came out. Right. I like, that's my lick. Sorry, you know. So with those guys, it was fun because initially Ed came to, at the time, my house and with a shoebox. I think he got some of it from Dweezil. Some of it he had, and they were dats, cassettes, CDs, and we sat there and we played, um, what's called, I call it Smasher Trash, you know? Right. And I was like, this is a great, where's this? Yeah. Oh, this is in David's parents' house basement. I go, what are you playing through? A basement. Oh shit, this is great. You know, but that's a good lick, you know? Mm -hmm. Maybe, yeah, well, that turned into this and that thing. So it was great for me as a fan yeah. to go through the history. You know, you can't look at it like you're sitting there with a guy who had his poster on my wall. You know, I mean, I remember buying the first record. I remember attempting to do my homework as I'm listening to Eruption. I'm like, well, I'm done here. <laughs> you know, it's, guess guitar is the way to go, you know? And just thinking that I wanted to be somehow a part of that. And we'd never heard something like that, which was interesting that this kid who was 12, 13, to think that years later that Ted Templeman, who produced all those early Van Halen records and the Doobie Brothers, I talked to him on the phone once and he's like, you know, you and I are in a very exclusive club. I'm like, what's that? He goes, the only two guys that have produced Van Halen and the Doobie Brothers. What a contrast. That's my whole point. You, you, um, you and I was like, wow. So different, you know? Yeah. And, but not when you really get into listening to the Doobies and, and understanding them and dance the night away, all those harmonies and the way they're stacked and you go, oh Yeah. There is a thread to some of those Doobie stacks and, and maybe Ted brought some of that to it, you know, or uh, Pretty Woman or just the way he, because he was in a vocal group. Oh, I didn't Like know. an association kind of band. Yeah. And, and I think that's what okay, I... Okay, that makes sense. So you go, oh, okay, there's a lineage. Yeah. Now, are those guys going to want to say, no, we're unique and we're our own thing and that was our thing? Yep. Yeah, but maybe that's why he was attracted to them because they were so developed at the Starwood when he saw them, before, when they got yeah. signed, you know, when he started to work with them. So the record, the idea was getting this material, but then they would come in, you could set your watch to the, those three guys every day at 11. And we tracked for, you know, we were working for months. We started in like January. So they'd all have the same exact windbreakers or park and little park as it was really kind of endearing. Because they come in like all looking the same, the three of them, and like like a team, like a, three, Eddie, Alex, Eddie, Alan, Wolf, and they'd come in like just like, talking, chatting, and get behind their, you know, Alex behind the drums, and Ed's here, Wolf's here. So I got to for six months basically sit in this beehive with them. Henson, did you do? Yeah, Henson? in Studio D, D where you had done that Rod song you were talking about. You know what? I don't mean to interrupt you. I just did a, a show with uh, Sammy Hagar and people make fun of me because I read charts because I'm, I'm always, I, I can't memorize 50, I'm juggling 50, 80 songs with different acts. 
anyway, I said to them, I have to play it like Alex. It's like, why would I do something different than what John Bonham did on those Zeppelin records? And that's, to edify what you're saying, that's what Sammy said. Those guys, Alex and Eddie, would rehearse for a week. Yeah. Every single part. Then I would put my vocals on top. So all those cool little drum fills and that little quirky thing, I'm like, wow, why can't I think of that? Well, he spent a whole week. Absolutely. And finally came up with that cool little yeah. thing, you know? I mean, listen, Ed's a legend, without a doubt. You know, he's one of the greatest guitar players of all time. Ever. Okay, Al is one of the greatest drummers of I all totally time. I totally agree. He said something really profound one one night. I said, so what, what, what happened? How did you... Because didn't Ed play drums and you played guitar? I flipped it. And he said, well, the difference is when Ed picked up the guitar, he made music, okay? He goes, I just played guitar. He made music. Now, they both played piano, or I think Ed played piano, obviously, too. But the idea of... There were moments recording. Now, they're playing the same song over and over and over. We're recording all... But there were moments where Ed could literally, they were looking at each other through the glass. Ed would lift his shoulder, like literally, like just go, and he'd move his shoulder and Al would play off of him. Like he knew, it was like a, tra like he was like, you know, it was like this zen. I almost cried one day. It was so beautiful. The DNA and, and, the, and how locked they were is, and the love. The love between them, it's, it still makes me want to cry. And Wolf, and they were supportive of Wolf. And so then you have this, right? This beautiful connection with these guys. And then, like any band, there's the singer. <laughs> <laughs> and we've worked with a lot of singers. And singers are, you know, there's that great saying when Springsteen's talking about 20 feet from stardom. And you and I have stood next to a lot of great oh, yeah. musicians. And, but Bruce says, let me tell you something. That's a long, lonely 20 feet walk. <laughs> and it's true because I've stood next to Melissa and I've stood next to Rod and I've stood next to Bon Jovi and we stood next to a lot of other artists and they are unique. And there's a gift that they have that's so hard to pinpoint what it is exactly. There's a charm, there's a talent, and there's a gift. And Dave has that gift. Because he had to sit there and write all these lyrics. And if you really listen to A Different Kind of Truth, Dave's work on that record is exceptional. I don't care what anybody says. I was there. There's a reason it's called A Different Kind of Truth. Because everyone has their own opinions yeah. that nobody really cares about. you know. Yeah. But I was fortunate and lucky enough to be a part of it and there. That's incredible. And so to see his work ethic, all of them, all of them, Ed was trying to come up with a solo one night and he's like i can't get it because let me take just can make me a just make me a cd of the solo this is uh ed yeah and and he went home and he came in and usually you gotta go so uh how'd it go or how'd you do or santana's done that too i was with him once and he said let me take the solo home and he called it going to the church and he has this place in his house where he goes and he sits between at his, his altar of truth between coltrane and Hendrix or whoever it is, and he develops the solo and they tell him what to play. And he came in with a worked out, beautiful solo, you know, and it had uh, like this beautiful arpeggiated motif in it. And it was, and Carlos came in with, uh, he said, I said, how'd you do? He said, well, they told me what to play. 
Miles, Miles and Coltrane. He's real spiritual. Oh, incredible. You know, and it's not like you sit there and go, oh, yeah. You know, you go, oh, I get it. Yeah. I get it. All right. Do you remember your first band, what the name of it was? Yeah. What was it called? (laughs) My first band. I'd say my first real band was called Line One, which was when I was at Beverly Hills High School. And... But not New York, so you didn't have a band? No, that was more like little acoustic showcase kind of stuff and go down and rent space and those rehearsal places in the 30s. And I played on a couple little hip-hop records that actually, you know, which is every once in a while I'll go, oh my God, that's me going, dig it, dig it, you know, like some Africa Bambata something or... What made you go from New York? Because New York was still well, happening. My family moved to, to L.A. Oh, they did? Yeah. Oh. So my parents, my, my oh, brothers. I didn't realize that. Mm. But so I was a jun- middle of my junior year in high school. And so my dream was to just get into a band and, you know, study guitar, like like take lessons so and do sessions. You know, there was that era where, you know, you I looked up to Carlton and Luke and Jay Graydon and those guys and Buzzy Featon and like, I want to be those guys. You know, you'd just comb these records, you know, back when they had credits. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you'd see this guy produced this record. Oh, wow, that's the same drummer from that record. Right. And, you know, I mean, the drummer from Lowdown is the same drummer from, you know. Jeffico. Yeah, it was Picaro. It was like, you're like, Lee who's Sklar. this? And who's this? Who's this Lee Sklar, you know? Yeah, yeah. And who who are these people? Well, who's that funk? Oh, it's Buzzy Feetin. Who's the other guitar player on... That Stevie Wonder song, oh, it's Jeff Beck on the right and it's Buzzy Featon on the left. Yeah. Who is this guy? Oh, he played in this band. You had to really work hard to find out who these guys yeah. were and, and are. And I've been doing that ever since. I still do it. It's like, who's this guy who played on Lenoir's record or who played on this? And how does the edge get this sound? How does so-and-so get this sound? What is that? An omnichord? Okay, cool. You know? Yeah. Put through a what a memory man and the SCD. See, that's the same thing you were doing. You were a little kid going left and right. Yeah, it's, it's the it's same. In, it's your brain. It's a curious. It's a curiosity. When did you when when did you start writing songs? I started writing probably at fourteen or fifteen, but I was too shy to play anybody my songs. You know, they were more very James Taylory, folky, Cat Stevensy kind of songs mm. because. You know, I couldn't record. It was pre-Porta Studio. I mean, I eventually got a Tascam Porta Studio 143, which changed my life. What were you using? What were we using when we were on tour? I'll never forget that moment. We were on tour. Dusk is coming, or sunlight's barely coming. We're in Italy, and we're listening to Rage Against the Machine. They came up with, was it that second record? Yeah. Was it Audio Slave? No, it was, no, it was Rage. Rage. Did you have an Akai out there? You were doing all kinds of writing. MPC too. I had an MPC. And you could... I was sampling and creating grooves, really. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah. Well, I started with a Tascam Porter Studio and then a a Dramatics Drum Machine and then a Juno 60 and a 57. You know, that was like... And and then I got a Spring Reverb and then I got a a Fectron Digital Delay and then I got a DBX 160 compressor. Like you just... I just kept like... Mm. And this is when I was like 18, 19 delivering pizzas and playing on people's demos. And every time I, you know, still living at home and I would buy gear and it taught me about counterpoint and taught me about sounds and recording and layering. And of course my songs are, <laughs> you know, by the time you finish, you know, yeah. those four tracks, bouncing them down, the you know, Beatles, you know, you start, how genius that was. you kept brightening it. So by the end, I don't know, it was very helpful. And then eventually getting a better drum machine and then eventually 
many years later, getting a sampler and an MPC and learning how to, I mean, I could sample that little drum break from there or that snare sound or that thing and mix it with this. And I was a fan because it was mixing hip hop with acoustic, anything I could do, anything that inspired me, whatever it was, some kind of sound. So, you know, whether, you know, even massive attack and mixing it with, you know, hip hop. And I remember you out there, man, you turned me on the Dortmunder or Dortmunster. Kruinder and Dorfmeister. Yeah. You turned me on to that stuff. You were like, wow, check this out. But it's also Eno, you know, I'm a huge Eno fan and I've, you know, because for me, ambient music is is so important for me personally ambient music is so important because it has nothing to do with a chorus or a hit single it's about an emotion and a mood you know when did you think wow i can do this or wow i'm actually good when was your wow moment like i'm actually good you haven't gotten there yet you're not there yet i knew you could say but you know what i'm saying when you go like wow i can actually do this I'm, i'm 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 not bad listen there's moments where you're doing it and you're doing it for fun and for free, and occasionally you get paid, and you just keep showing up. You're not gauging how far you've come. You're just woodshedding, you know? It's like learning a craft, you know? You show up, and every time you show up, you're learning something. You're learning something from the producer, from the the other guitar player on the session, or getting to work with certain music drummers or musicians and and not not that you're not a musician (laughs) but the idea that you know working in a collaborative setting you start to go oh i want a little of what he has or what she did on this and i started seeing that working with different producers like he's so good with singers Mm. he's this guy always has food coffee keeps the energy going Keeps it light, keeps it fun. This guy's drum sounds. Mm. This guy's how, you know. So I would be, as the guitar player, after we would track back in the day, I would do overdubs. So you got the chance to sit with the producer a lot of times. And I would ask, I was that guy. What's the compression ratio on Intruder on Peter Gabriel's record? And Hugh Padgett would go, 10 to 1, you know, and walk off. And I'd be like, 10 to 1, 10 to 1. See, that was that inquisitive mind yeah. that from day one. That's how It's you not like, um, I think it's really important to come from a place of humility, you know, and curiosity. And mm. it's not like I'm stealing the information so I can compete with you and stamp you out. Some people come from that place. I'm not into that place. That what, bores me. What would I do if I said to you after, let's say, a Bon Jovi concert, I said, do you think you were great tonight? Do you have a hard time saying yes? Well, we were playing some place and some friend of mine came backstage and I'd had, I'd made some mistakes or something didn't work. It I didn't, didn't work. It didn't work for me, yeah. you know? And he's like, God, you were, you were, man, you were on it tonight. And I was like, no, you know, I, I missed this thing. And, and he goes, Hey man, that's your problem. <laughs> you know, exactly. That's your, your shit. shit. Right. It's your problem. He goes, I loved it. You were great. You know, there it is. and he goes, you have to remember, and this is what I, the other thing he said, he goes, you have to remember you're a cog in the wheel. You're part of the collective. It ain't about you. It's about supporting the artist. And you guys as a unit were fantastic. So nobody cares that you and the third bar missed your like double stop gunslinger <laughs> it's like he's right do you think uh, yeah, he was you know, right this, i mean tom brady seven 
Super Bowl rings, he could sit there and say, well, I did this wrong, did that. He's got seven Super Bowl rings. He's doing something right. Right. So for me, one of the moments, you know, there, you think of these profound moments in one's life. And one was certainly we were doing a Melissa record and it wasn't going well. I was just the guitar player. I never, this is really important, never crossed the boundaries. You know what I mean? I never went to Melissa and said, I write songs. I should produce your record. I know, you know what I mean? It's a very different mentality nowadays. You know, what is songwriting and what is producing? Because there's many records, and I know there's records that you've played on where we've come up with big hooks. And nowadays they think that's songwriting a lot of times, and it's not. You know, oh, so you're clear about that. I'm saying, did you write the lyric? Did you write the melody and the chord changes? Well, you know, you're hired to show up and do a job. And so if you happen to write the hook line, that's your job. Right. And as the producer. Is that the way you look at it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, now there have been. What about t- these, some of these rap records? they got 50 writers on them. One guy came up with the snare sound. One guy came up with the bass sound. One guy came up with two words. And they're all, you say written by, and it's like a, looks like a Bible. Yeah, well, this is a, this is a, this is almost, you got to have a panel about this okay you could because someone's allowing that well you know are they sampling something so that's one thing so then so that's fine and i'm not a big fan of committee songwriting i've been in fancy lunches where you know i've been told by executives like well you know we had a, a a songwriting camp and we had this track we liked and we had you know 15 writers come in on it and write verses and choruses and melodies. And then we picked and choose what we, that's, I, that's great. That's cool. If that's your thing. That's not my thing. I'm in the, the artist. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just not there. I'm just not there. There was a period where I was really like cognizant of playing, trying to write hit songs. And not that I'm not aware of that when something feels like a single or feels like a hit. What songs do you want to play for people when they come in the room, when you're working on a record. If you say like, hey, this is X person's record I'm working on. Hey, let's play them, blah, 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 blah. It's usually, those are kind of the catchy songs, which is fine, or they rock. Or sometimes it's like, it's, you know, check out the lick on this or check. So I'm jumping around, but you know, the idea of what is songwriting, I still come from a bit of the Nashville thing, which is, you know, if it's three people in a room, it's thirds. If it's two, it's 50. Right. You know, and... So when you get together, let's say, with Michelle Branch, you guys, are, she's got a song, but you, together, you... But we've written, it's like with John Bon Jovi or yeah. Keith or, or whoever I've written with, you know, that never really comes into question. Oh, that's great. That's cool. I mean, and if you're having those questions, yeah. stick around. Yeah. You know, because, and I've gotten into it with artists, pretty big artists. Back in the day, I used to call my manager and I'd say, I know what they think the splits are. Right, right, right. And they come back, well, 75, 25. Um, I'm like, yeah, yeah. Because I don't doubt our worth is equal, meaning that you and I are both putting in 110%. And if you and I are writing a lot of songs together, that's why Lennon McCartney just split everything. Yes, John mostly wrote that song. Or yes, Paul wrote that song. But they were a team and they made that decision. So if you're want to have a relationship with somebody and a good run with somebody. It's just easier just to go because you know what? I could be hot on Tuesday and crappy on Thursday and you could be hot on Thursday, but you and I are writing and you, and, and so if there's this dialogue, 
then we're going to bring out the best in each other and believe in each other. You know, yeah. like I, I, I'm at 20 percent today. What do you got? Well, I got some. Like, you don't have to think about it. If you're thinking about that, I got to be careful. But this is a Celine Dion record. I won't say who the songwriter was. This guy was the song. He wrote the song all by himself. I don't know about the lyrics, but he wrote all the song. Maybe he wrote the lyrics and he was producing it. She got 50 percent. She wasn't even in the session. Yeah, well, that's... that's you know whole, what I'm saying? Yeah, that's a whole and, other thing. And that's thing. probably her manager, her husband. So I remember me having that conversation with... Well, that's guy. where somebody like a manager said to her at some point, hey, you know, you're not making as much off your records as you could. Right. But if you start taking publishing because it's kind of like the toll, you know, all these artists, songwriters are paying a toll fee to get a cut on this artist's record. Well, she sold 40 million copies. At the time, you know, I mean, I worked with Celine and yeah. I came after that. So she didn't do that to me. Right. And there were times where I wrote songs for her and then there were times I produced her. And a gem. She was a, a funny... Oh, I bet she, she is was. still. She's amazing. Well, this guy, I mean, it was... I mean, so let's say he gets seven points per song. He got three and a half now because he has to give half... But because he's producing, gets another three and a half back. So he's getting his seven points. Ooh. The songwriter producer. So, he, yeah. 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 It's something. <laughs> and I remember him calling me up and going like, what do you think, man? Um, and because uh, he was thinking of making a move where he was living where the tax rate was very high. I said, I think you might want to make the move because. Move to, to, to move a place somewhere where else? Taxes, taxes aren't bad. Because my point was, he wanted me to help him do the math. Because if you get a two songs on this person's record is going to sell. I was just guesstimating 27 mil. You know, you're going to do really well and you might consider making that move. You know what I mean? My point was that yeah, some people don't know a lot of these type of details. Well, there is a difference, obviously, between writing and publishing and producing. Yeah. I don't want to say the reason I wanted to produce was that, okay, the thing about producing is that there's a budget. And you get an advance as a producer, usually, yeah. you know, whatever the amount of, you know, who knows what the, but, you know, now it's singles, you know, yeah. so let's say we can give you this as an advance for the song. And then there's a budget on top of that. Then there's my fee, my points, credit, all that. Now, let's say I wrote the song and it's you and I wrote the song. That's a whole other side of the pie. Yeah. But the thing about producing is while you're waiting <laughs> For the songwriting money to come in yeah. through ASCAP or BMI or whatever, or mechanicals from radio and how much thing it has earned, how do you survive? Well, if you're producing, you get a fee. So it's this yeah. dance that starts this revolving door of, you know, well, I'm producing this, so that pays my bills. And, but, oh, and then here comes this money. Right. And, and so that, for me, was really helpful in the beginning when I, when I started getting calls as a producer and a writer. And then what would happen is some albums, you know, I only wrote like four of the songs on the right. record, but I produced the whole album. Right. So you get advanced, you're waiting for the publishing. Yeah. I mean, it's, now, what about today though? I mean, all that stuff is so much less because nobody buys records. Well, you know, we let the cat out of the, you know, we, unfortunately we didn't protect ourselves, you know, with streaming and, yeah. you know, this is the Who's big, we? well, us songwriters and producers and, you think you could have protected yourself? Well, I think big, it was so company? new that nobody, they were, nobody knew what to do. The or labels, what was the labels well, made the lab out. They made out. This is, this is one of these conversations people disappear about, you know. But it's the idea that 
look what's happening right now. The writer's strike for all the oh, screenwriters okay. and you have uh, all the actors on strike. Because what happened with the actors is they gave away cable years ago. Mm. So if you had a national, I, mean, I know I'm talking TV here yeah. or actors, but you know, if you'd get a national commercial spot as an actor, you'd got paid a lot, but they were buyouts on cable. So you weren't getting the residuals. You, you probably, yeah. because at the time cable was tiny. It was HBO and maybe yeah. Showtime and, no one, there was pre-TNT and all these other channels, and now there's a hundred of them. Now they became big. Right. So there, it should be, and, and in the music business, it's a similar thing. Remember with DVDs, movie companies held on to that. They held the line longer than the music industry. And what happened with the music industry is, unfortunately, when streaming became what it became, is that quickly all the labels made deals with Apple and Spotify yeah. so they could continue to stay in business. And unfortunately, the writers and producers of those records got the short end of the stick. And that's still what's happening. So when I would write a song, say, on a Bonnie Raitt record in 96, and it was an album cut, I could survive yeah. as a writer. Yeah. You know, I was like, I'd make a good chunk. Well, she was selling records, too. She, you know, but yeah. So let's say she sold two, three million copies. Sold sold like people bought on and just having being so grateful as a writer to, or joe cocker or tina turner to get those opportunities as a young writer coming up there was a sense of pride and when you would get your first publishing deal which i in 90 i got my first publishing deal you know and for me that meant wow i don't have to be a production assistant i don't have to deliver pizzas yeah, yeah. i can just play on records write songs and I felt supported and I was put in rooms because of having a publishing deal with other songwriters. And I learned my craft, you know, because you got to write a lot of bad songs to write a few good ones. I remember two pivotal moments, maybe in the same year or close to, and it was with you. And it was the Michelle Branch record. And this was where it was flipping, where you used to put everybody in a room and you got to get the drum track and you built everything on top of that. I remember coming in I think it might have been at Sunset Sound. Yeah. And I'm listening to these tracks and they sound finished, like finished. And so I, you know, my drum techs would set up my drums and we're going and we're having to really do some work to get the snare drum and the kick drum to sound right because it's got to fit sonically yeah. around, you know, you have three guitars and stereo, you got background vocals, you got the main vocal, you got bass, keyboards, loops, and all this stuff. So we spent a long time, like took the front head off the kick, went to a smaller kick, put an ambient mic in front. Anyway, I'm getting a track. I think the song was everywhere. Getting a track, and I'm like, oh, I got it. I look in the room, and there's nothing going on. I'm like, uh-oh, something's wrong. I take my headphones off. I walk in. I go to you. I say, is there something wrong? He says, you tell me. I'm like, go up. I said, well, the engineer, give me the click in the drums. Okay, okay. Give me the loops, click in the drums. Okay. Something's not, I sound laid back. And I said, give me the acoustic rhythm guitars. A little on top. I look over at you and you're going, yeah, it's me. I said, I got it. I go out there, take the, the click down, get the loops out and play to your tracks. It was not bad. It was just that you were leaning, which created energy. And that song needed energy. Mm -hmm. It was that killer chorus. And uh, I played your... It's always the guitar player rushing. Now, when you looked at me, <laughs> says, it's me, right? I says, yeah, but it's okay. And... The point is, that's when I went, wow. Now I'm going to fast forward that year. Wait, wait, let me just say one thing. So the reason you're great on so many levels, but 
that's a very important thing that you just brought up because you didn't come from your ego. You were a team player and you said, you know, and I was like, I'm sorry, the loops got there first. <laughs> so yeah. you got to play to these loops because everything, even though I'm rushing, is built off this thing. Right. So that means the kick pattern has to be this. I'm sorry, you have to be a bit of a machine, but I want your I like fills it. and I want your energy and I want the sound of the room because I want it to rock more than it is. You know, I want to find that high, that space, but it takes a, a certain kind of musician, like not, I'm Kenny Aronoff, kid. You didn't treat me like I was a kid. Well, you didn't treat me, you, tr you know, you were very, and that's why you were the perfect person in that situation because you helped me. You helped me. Wow. You know, well, I you, didn't realize I was helping but you. But listen, I've been in situations where there were <laughs> other drummers and it was a similar kind of vibe where this, it was built off beats yeah. and loops and, and they just kind of played, you know, like, hey man, I'm blah, blah, blah. This is what I'm known for. Yeah. And you can suck it, basically. Yeah. And so there was one time I had, I doesn't, and we're, he and I are friends, you know, and I, and I went out there in the room and I said, hey, because the artist was in the room and said, are you going to tell him or am I going to tell him? And, <laughs> and they were like, well, you're the producer, <laughs> Mr. Producer, you go out there and tell him. So I'm like, great. I have to, here comes, I have to go in the room and here's a guy I really, you know, like yourself, I really respect yeah. and admire. And I said, listen, the whole song is built off this kick pattern. You got to play it. You got to play it. You know me, I write everything out. And then the guy went, okay, didn't do it. I went out a second time and I said, I know our time is limited. I know you have to leave soon. And I kind of leaned in and I said, I can do this with you or without you. <laughs> and that was really a scary moment. And I didn't want to be that guy, but you know, sometimes I love that you, that guy, sometimes that, you have to yeah. be that guy. Because it's, it's great. Because it, it's about the song, and the song needed that energy, and we had worked hard to get it to that place, and thought about the kick pattern, and thought about you know the syncopation and all the grooves, and I said something else to this person, and he was like, "I got you," and he of course nailed it, and I was like, "Was well, now was that so hard?" <laughs> you know? Well, here's what I'm leading to. So you remember this? This is infamous in my recording career and you and i did 13 songs oh, yeah. in one day yeah eight alanis morissette's two anastasia uh melissa Etheridge, which became an incredible song it was like a hillary duff song Hil it was uh, a hillary it was hillary on that one but uh, your memory's uh, better than mine but it was a, a something you'd done with johnny resnick from yeah, Goo Goo Dolls. Dolls. maybe a demo or something something, something that might have been was hopefully going to go to gwen stefani I was on tour with Michelle Branch, flew from Philadelphia at 7.30. You only had a day. That's the reason we that's did it. That's it. But here's what I'm getting at. So then I do, everything's written out. I remember, we were in Studio D. I come in, I'm there at 11, 11.30, we're going. I remember Studio I, B, but that's and okay. I, Maybe it was Studio B. And then I fly back that night to New York to do, like, some morning show. The point is, it was great. Oh, it was so great. I remember laying all the charts out and laying on the floor like oh. we took a picture every time. Yes, <laughs> like, right. But here's I, the, I found those pictures. Not here's the point. This is when the budget started to change. Yeah. Well, we had to do it in one day because of the budgets. Exactly. That's the point. That's what I'm trying to say. So people may not realize those rooms are like two and a half grand a day, roughly. John, you had a room in Henson. You had your own room. You could work up all these, and you, your work was impeccable. Get all the songs ready with drum machines. What's his name? Was an incredible programmer. 
He was a drummer who could program it. Yeah. And then you wanted to get the natural, raw thing to take it to a you know, pop rock level that worked great on radio. You made your mark in that time. The Michelle Branson was this high energy, but yet pop, girl singer, real radio friendly. It was a major touchdown. But for me, I'll never forget, it was during that same period, Sherry Sutcliffe calls me up, the project coordinator says, hey, Kenny, are you available to do this session in two weeks? I said, are you in town? I said, yeah, yeah, just fly me in, like always. Mm. Budgets were changing. And it was that time, and that's when I realized I got to move to L.A. Because oh, right. you can't, I had, right. I had drums, New York, Nashville, L.A., right. Indiana, of course, where I lived, Germany, and Japan. I went, you got to be in town. Yeah. That's why I came here in this studio. Right across there where my drums are, it used to be your guitar locker. Right. And I, I went, the budgets have changed. Yeah. I saw that the whole game was changing. I'm overdubbing drums over. So when John says, I need you, uh, there's no budget to fly you, you got to be in town. Yeah, but there are guys like yourself and guys that, like Victor and Drizzo, yeah. Abe Laboreal Jr., you know, the guys that came up playing in bands and understand that there have been plenty of times where we're in a room and I said, like, the, when you're talking about the Goo Goo Doll song, for example, I was yeah. like, you know, this could be the record. This is where we just wrote this. Mm. And can you play on this? Right. And you don't differentiate. It's all a record. And that's the way I think of it. You know, the demo is the record. The record is the, you know, it's all connected. So as long as we keep track of it, you know, because sometimes that demo will end up being the record. And so people like yourself understand the process. So you don't get all like, well, you know, I played on that demo and you never got paid or da, da, da. You know, it's like that shit doesn't fly much, you know? So the people that are kind of understand the process go, you know, like Victor, a lot of times I call him up and I'm like, you know, I just wrote this song today. Where are you? He's like, yeah. I just left a session. I can come by yeah. and the kit's set up and yeah. he comes and rolls in and yeah. we either track it live yeah. Or he plays on top of it. And I write down, Victor played on yeah. the, you know, Scooby-Doo song or yeah. some song. And that song became the single. And I make sure that he gets paid what he should be paid when it becomes the record. You know, if not, I definitely owe him a lot of sushi, you know, and take care of him as a pal. And we get to be together and we hang because we're friends, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so there's a bit of that. And the guys that get that especially with budgets changing and the, word, the way the world is, you have to come from a place you do it because you love it, you know? And you have to have that idea that you're doing it for fun and for free. Otherwise, you know, if you're always looking for the results and the outcome and where's mine, that's yeah. not a good place, a spiritual place to come from. You gotta look at the big game, the big picture. You gotta think like, you know, do I wanna be in this business? You know, but how much do you want to chase the carrot too? That's all that goes into the up back to the, you know, the writing and this producing and trying to have hits constantly. You know, Bill Leopold, yeah. Melissa's man, used to say a, a hit song cures cancer, <laughs> you know, meaning just do the work and a good song will move people. Yeah. You don't have to convince people when it's a good song. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what genre it is, if it's country or pop or rock or whatever, you know, whatever your floats your boat. A good song, you're moved. There's an emotional connection, whether it's the melody, even if it's the, the most trite pop song, look for the good. You know, people spend so much time like, well, I hate that guy, or I hate that yeah. song, or I would never, I'd never do that. Well, okay, 
for me, it was really important to work with young artists and career artists. And that was always my dream. You know, yes. Do I want to work with the up and coming singer songwriters? Yes. Shell Branch. Well, that was that, you know, she was 17 when I met her. And what's interesting is everywhere was an idea she had started and nobody liked it. Nobody liked it in in her camp. They were like, don't worry about that. Forget that idea. And she goes, you know, they don't like this. What do you think of this? And it was, the melody was different, but the idea for me that you're everywhere to me, so simple. But as a songwriter, you're like, you're everywhere to me. I get that. When I close my eyes, you're all I see. Wow. You know, I mean, so it's like, who can't relate to that? We did. We sat, I said, this is what I said. I said, give me an hour. Let's rewrite the song. Are you okay inviting me into your song? That's number one. Of course. Are you going to get all like, and she's like, no, this, otherwise it's not going to happen. Smart. So we sat and we stripped it down and we wrote the lyrics and wrote the chord changes. And I said, you got to go to, the chorus needs to lift. She worked with me. I worked with her. Oh, that's and, great. But that's, you know, Cheryl's sure. like that. John Bon Jovi's like that. Keith Urban is like that. There's a song I wrote with Natasha Benningfield and mm. Daniel Brisbois, and it's, it's Pocket Full of Sunshine. It's a very poppy song. But what's funny about the story of that song is we got together to work, to write. It was a session. We spent all day writing a very professional song, right? And I was nervous about the session. So I wrote her this piece of music before she showed up the night before. I did the track, basically. To, of that song? Of that song. And with the little keyboard lick, the acoustic guitars, the drum beat. And I thought, you know, this, maybe she would go over something like this. We're at the end of the day, done with the professional song. It's now six o'clock. She's got to go to another session in Malibu. We're talking about kids, cancer, homeless, hunger. And I said, you know, it'd be so great if you just had this like beautiful sunshine. You could just like, you're cancer free. You're not homeless. Here's food. Here's love. Here's sobriety, whatever it is, spirituality. Yeah. And she's like, oh, that's such a great title. We should, next time we get together, we should, we should do that. She's never coming back because we wrote a good song. We didn't write a great song. I go, you know, I wrote you this track. I want you to hear it. She's like, John, I, I've got to go. I'm like, just fucking cranked it. <laughs> and she comes up behind me and she goes, I got a pocket, got a pocket full of sunshine. And I turn her and I go, I got a love and I know that it's all mine. And we both went, yeah, oh yeah. I was like, you have to go sing that. Just go sing that. And so she went out in the room with her coat on. To that track? Did to you the play track? It? Yeah. yeah. She, I so was you like, had it on that track. Yeah. So we had it. Oh, that makes sense. Good move. Sang it. Cell phone's ringing. What do you want to eat at your next session? Blah, blah, blah. It's in Malibu. You got to get going. I was like, double it. Double it again. Sing it again. Now sing a harmony. John, I have to sing it again. Go. Oh, okay. So we built up this. We wrote the chorus in real time. Everyone's like, ah, she's got to go. Not thinking, not, you know, just having fun. And then just like, oh, we need another section. I'm like, uh, take me away. A secret, a better place, a secret space. Take me away. Sing it. (laughs) What? Hurry, go, go. Number one song. I said, you know what's going to be really funny? Because it's all hooks. There's no verses. There's no like, you know, I got to, you know, and 
and I was walking down the street and I found a penny and I picked it up and I put it in my pocket and it turned into a dollar and, and that dollar I gave to somebody else and then they bought food and they got a new job and it like this trip, like that's what I was thinking versus, but we turned it in with no verses. Brilliant. And I said, we're going to get the call. She's like, no, 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 we're not going to get the call. We get the call. You know, we've been listening to this song. We love it. I'm just using this song as a metaphor for all songs. Of course. We get the, we get the call. Okay. There's no verses. And I thought, there's no verses. I told you. <laughs> so we said, okay. And we wrote all the verses. We wrote all, all these verses and she sang them. And it's not the same. The song is like. When the song came out, it's like, it refreshed me. Were the verses in No. So the verse. I'm getting to the punchline. Okay. So, yes. so, so called up the head of the label all the at, promo people they're like we'll play you the verse and we'll sing it to you over the phone <laughs> and god bless her she, she we played it to them over the phone they were like oh thank you that's great we love it she goes that's the first time and the last time you will ever hear those verses click hung up we were like Woo. so the version that's out there doesn't there's a version somewhere that's never been released that has verses but it would have diluted the, the, the simplicity I, I totally of the idea. So the idea of going back to whatever song we can think of, you know, all the way back to Michelle or Joe Cocker or Rod Stewart or Melissa or Alanis or Cheryl, it's like, there's the hook. There's the simplicity of what that title is. And, you know, because I remember there was a song I wrote with the guys in Take That, and it's called Patience. And it was a, a big hit, one song of the year at the Brits. Yeah. And I met Lucian Grange, you know, who runs Universal. And he goes, he comes up to me, he goes, hey, kid, that patient song, love it. That's all he remembered was the little falsetto hook and the title. And I thought, great. You know what, you're at the <laughs> mercy. Like, someone could say, nah, when you were presenting a song to a label person and you got some A&R guy that wouldn't know a hit from nothing, and you're at the mercy of them and what they're going to do. I've uh, Listen, right? there was a song I did I'm going back to a long time, but it's a uh, pieces of me. It's an Ashley Simpson song, and I and I really oh, like. I that. think I was on that. Right? Yeah, you played you played on that, and I really like that song. You know, and it was one of those songs where I kind of felt I had the title, I knew what I wanted, I'm the melody, I kind of knew what I want, but I knew the idea with the way she sang. You know, pieces, pieces of me. That it's like you know that same thing where it's just the repetition of the title and the big melody and the payoff of the chorus and. And then it was like a, a, a collective lyrically, the, a team working on to making it, honing it in and making it great. But we, we fought for the melody. And at the time she was like, I don't know if we should. I was like, no, we got it. And I said, give me this song and then I'll do whatever you want on the rest of the record. Oh, I, I just that. felt that strongly about it. Yeah. So at the end of the night, printed a mix for the car, right? So through a TC finalizer. It was a rack-mounted unit. Uh -huh. That's all we had back then. Yeah. 2000, I don't know. Oh, we used to go into cars and listen, because that's what people are going to listen to right. so songs I, on. For the, for the end Radio. of the night, I was like, just give me a, a mix for the car. And we kind of mixed it in 15 minutes. And, and I went in, and just what you were saying, I went in and played it for Jimmy Iovine. And I played him the four or five songs we had been working on on the record so far. And it was the classic, all right, you know, good job. Thanks for coming in. You know, come back when you have the single. And I said, I played you the single. And they're like, oh, oh, really? Which one is the single? Song two. I put it there for a reason. And then it was like, well, let's listen to that again, shall we? Let's go. 
Now, it took a lot of guts to say, I played you the single, but I believed in the song. To his credit, to his credit, he said, listen to it once, listen to it again, listen to it again, and and maybe a fourth time. And he turned to me, he goes, you're right. And he goes, how about this? I'll go even one further with you. I went, okay. He goes, first off, I didn't really appreciate the song because the first song was such a rocker. Sonically, it kind of took me a while to settle in it. But if I hear this individually, it works. I get it. Thank you. You know, good job. And he said, you can do whatever you want, but that's the mix. And I'm like, Jimmy, no, that's the car mix through a finalizer for the car. He goes, kid, you can do whatever you want, but I got that. And that sounds like a hit to me. And that's what I'm going through. So enjoy yourself. Go mix it again. Go do it again. What ended up coming up? His version. Of course. He was right. Yeah. He was right. That's incredible. No, okay, now let's jump into Rod Stewart. We did this record. It was that yeah. classic, you know, is it still the same? The, the great rock, rock classic. So it's all hits, you know, a bunch of them, like Bob Seger, uh, you know, The Pretenders, uh, John Fogarty, all hits. So you're not writing any songs, but it's Rod Stewart. You and I both, as kids, you know, like, oh my God, Rod Stewart's, you know, the faces, oh my God. I played in his band. I know, you played in his band. I remember you telling me, I'm like, are you kidding me? What's that like to me on stage? You and Ollie and Oliver, you're in Rod's band and you know, he's a rock star. He's like, there's a few people out there that have been rock stars for 50 years, Elton John, you know, Rod Stewart. I mean, and now you're producing him. And I was there. Thank you for inviting me. Studio B, Henson, with this incredible band. Yeah. And the thing that blew me away, because yeah, I was Dean, Dean Parks, Tim Dean Pierce, Parks. Lee Sklar, Jamie Mahobrick. Uh, uh, and, the, and what's his name? Um, and the keyboard player, Matt Rollins, was there too, right? Maybe. I think it was Jamie, mostly. Oh, it was? And then it was, Lee Sklar was there, definitely. Yeah, it was the, you, the rhythm session was you You and didn't Lee. play guitar in it. it, was, it I did. I put, but I not not always win the tracking. Steve Parks and and, uh, and Tim, Tim, yeah, yeah, it was incredible. But I trust I, me, I played guitar later. <laughs> yeah, of course you did. But I knew that Rod doesn't like to sing because when uh, that funny story, which I gotta remind you about. But I remember that Rod wouldn't sing in sessions. He just and then you got him to sing in this session, but they covered up the glass so he didn't have to look at us. Yeah, I don't think he wanted. He could see me, but he couldn't, he couldn't see, see us. But it was incredible. I'm hearing his voice. Yeah. I'm playing, it made me play differently. But he had to get comfortable with you guys for a minute. I understand that. Well, he got comfortable with me because we were joking about his manager basically yeah. subsidized John Mellencamp because he had a manager called Billy Gaff. And you had to take John Cougar on a show. We don't want John Cougar. What if you get Rod Stewart? You can get Rod Stewart, but you got to take John Cougar. So Rod made a big joke about how he felt like he helped John Cougar become John Mellencamp and have a career. Mm. But anyway... He was great, man. But that that's, what's it like working? I mean. Well, the interesting thing, so I played guitar for him for three, four years. Oh, before that. With Rod. Yeah, so he already knew you. He knew me. But. And when I left, but when I left the band, I remember the moment I was before Christmas at one point and we were playing Earl's Court and I walked into, I, and knocked in his dressing room and I said, do you have a minute? And he went, No. He knew. And I said, I think I'm going to stay home in February. I'm not going to go back out. And he was like, why? Has something happened? And I was like, no, you've been amazing. But I want to, I really want to stay home and write and produce. And he went, 
Really? <laughs> like, good luck with that, kid. And, you know, no, he was cool. He was supportive. He got it. And well, look where you end up producing his record. Well, that, so the irony is I had been working a lot with Clive Davis at the time, doing Kelly Clarkson and Santana and somebody else for him. And so he was like, do you want to, I'm thinking of doing this because he had such success with the songbook. Right. And he wanted to do the rock right. book, which was really interesting because we would, there was a very funny moment where we were meeting at the bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And we had, everyone had their like billboard top number one songs of all time. And we were going through, you know, the sixties and seventies and trying to pick number one. And, and Clive, it had to be a number one. And I was like, no, 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 this song, oh, number three, can't do it. I'm like, Clive. so there was a moment where Rod's in the room and a couple A&R guys and Clive and the door to the suite is open and Elton walks by and they have pet names for each other. Wow. Like Denise and Clara or something. Oh, yeah. you know? so, English, so English, right, yeah. you know? And he leans back into the room and he goes, darling, is this how many people it takes to make one of your records? <laughs> and then kept walking. And Rod's just like, oh. it was genius. That's amazing. So we finally got, you know, there was a couple songs that we, you know, they wanted us to do that we had to put our foot down and say, no, we're not going to, you know, because it, it, it's not appropriate for Rod to cover. Right. It's too close. It's a peer. You know what I mean? It's too similar. It's like he's not going to cover a stone song right you know what i mean right so, i get it so you I know totally the musicians in the room had to be like no yeah and clive would respect that and sometimes clive would have an idea and you went oh that's a that's a great one we did that bread song and at first rod wasn't into it but then i said the song was about his dad it's not about a relate a, right. a, a, a love interest and when he realized it was about his dad and he calls it being an orphan. He lost his dad. Yeah. He, he loved the song and father and son. We did. Father and son, we did, yeah. The version of father and son. Yeah. But the, the, the first day of him walking into the studio, he comes up to me and goes, aren't you glad we ended our relationship amicably? You know, that we're still friends. That's deep. Because who would have thought 10 years later, you'd be producing me? 10 years. Ten, was it 10 years? 10 years later. That was. Yeah, it was 2000. What was it? It was at least maybe almost 10 years. Yeah. And he was fantastic. He's in, in oh, he was, and it's a great, and it's a really good record. And I felt very lucky and privileged. We did a Joe Cocker record together too. Oh my God. Respect. Right. Yeah. Over at, uh, no, we did it in D. We did it in D. You're right. We did. That was handsome. Oh my God. Well, and that when I tour with Joe Cocker, I mean, it's like, right. Which we know, of course. So when they say, Hey, you know, for Fogarty, Hey, do you want, you should try this guy, Kenny. He played with Cocker, yeah. Rod Stewart, yeah. Mellencamp, Elton. He's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Bring that. Yeah, bring that guy. Yeah, let's get that guy. You know. You know, I, I got. But that's two, one of the funniest stories I'll tell people is I'm walking. This I'm going to record with Rod Stewart and D and putting that all together here. I fly in from Indiana, or wherever. I land. I come busting through the door at A and M back mm -hmm. then. I remember. And, th you. and you're there's you. I met you from. Yeah, we met a couple of times. It was at the the Cleveland thing. Yeah. There's you and Hugh Pageant. I come through the door because I got to run back. I'm late for the session. You guys start laughing at me. I'm like, yeah. what? And you took it personally. I took it personally. We're like, why are you laughing yeah. at me? And, and I said, we're looking for you. Well, <laughs> you didn't say it right then and there. We like, were I'll, working on a song. Right. and You were co-producing with Melissa. I was. With you. Yes. And Okay, okay. And 
I'm trying to think if I was producing that record. You were co-producing? Co-producing. Anyway, and, the point is, yeah. we were like, you know what this song needs? We need a drummer like, you know, Kenny Aronoff. And that's when I walked through the door. And we and we were saying, yeah, you know, I wonder how we can get his number. I wonder, because, I, I, you know, I think he's in town a lot. And we walked in out into the hallway and you were literally walking down the hallway. That's funny. That's why we were laughing. And, and, then and he, we were laughing pretty hard because you, we, no, this you, was like a five, 10 minute conversation. We know, oh, no, do you know him? Do you know how to yeah. Dude, it was, and like, then Lee came behind you, Lee yeah, Spar, because he was going back with me. Yeah, but here's what happened: you didn't say what it was, and I'm still wondering what's going on. And Hugh says, "Hey, can I have your number? I'm working on a record. I might want you to be on it with the Melissa record." But it, you know, it was fascinating. Was that night at the Rock and Roll which Raw Hall of Fame, which was a oh, historic dude. night. Historic night. I mean, everyone was there. Everyone. I was on a, a, a bench on the side of. The, I was, was on the bench for eight hours. And those bleachers. You and I, eight hours. And we were watching everybody. Everybody. And there was one moment where Melissa kind of goes like this to me. Yeah. And she goes, and she goes, look down, down the the row. And it was, it was you, me, and Melissa. But it was Dylan. Yes. Springsteen. Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown. uh, Bonnie Raitt. Bonnie Raitt. Yeah. So James Brown, Chuck Berry. It was just like Chrissy Hine. Yeah. It was uh, Bon Jovi. Yeah who I didn't really know. I met him that night too, really. I bumped into him a few times. Yeah. So the irony that all our paths would yeah. intersect and cross, and I've I've known Jackson since I was 18 or, not, yeah, probably 18 or 19, always been really supportive of me as a writer, as a producer, yeah. and would, used to call me on the phone. And, you know, I heard that record you did. Good job, kid. You know, keep going, like, keep going, kid. And I'm like, now if... The 14-year-old me said, okay, so Jackson Brown's going to call you to give you support. Or that I would go from playing guitar with Melissa to to collaborating with her and producing her and writing songs together. What changed my life, you know, I'm going to jump ahead for a second, is there was a situation where it was like you and Pino were in, was in the room and Pino kept pulling me aside. And he said, hey, cool, mate. By the end of this day, you're going to be producing this record. And I was like, wow. And I go, Pino? And yeah. He's tall. You know? Yeah. So I look up <laughs> and, and I go, you're crazy. He goes, I've been here. I've seen it. Just play it cool. Stay in your lane. Wow. And he was such a big brother to me, like you've been. And sure enough, she pulled me in the back by the dinosaur in the back parking lot at Henson. And she was like, John Shanks, would you produce my record? <gasps> wow. And that record... We got like four nominations. Best rock song that she and I wrote. Your little secret, right? No, it was uh, Breakdown. Breakdown. And break, that one. That record. Right. So that, after Your Little Secret. Yeah. We were so. getting in the loops and stuff. Yeah. And yeah. all kinds of, remember, I'd make all these mishmash. You had your pony. We called it the pony. Yeah. The kick drum with the fur on it yep. or something. We did all kinds of mishmash and create a whole loopy thing and then play to that. Scarecrow. But, but, but she let me do it. Yeah, she gave me the support and budget. Had a great budget, you know. Yeah. At the time, she was coming off. You know, I'm the only one, and you right. know, come to my window. She was on fire, Huge. and and, and we would sell out fifteen thousand seats sometimes. When we we on- went from opening for Sting at the Garden to headlining the the Garden two nights. If anyone should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it should be Melissa Etheridge. I agree. So um, she paved the way for a lot of other female artists that are now accepted and loved and adored. And Melissa paved the way for all of them. 
And I've seen Melissa turn water into wine in front of audiences. Dude, I saw you yeah. guys perform at the at, at Cleveland. So I wanted to go back and look at that. Yeah. That oh was my, a, she was dressed in leather. Yeah, she we were all hot. in leather. You got you had this, the headband. Yeah. You guys were kicking. But she was one of the greatest. And I, I remember she was great at Woodstock. We played Woodstock oh, and, yeah. and it was five hundred thousand people. I'd yeah. never played in five hundred yeah. that many people. Yeah. I was you can take she, an audience. And a lot of people didn't survive 94 Woodstock as far as their performances because they choked. And, oh, wow. and she she rose above. She don't choke. She had all the, the mud people on acid yeah. loving her by the end. Of, and we were playing between Henry Rollins and, and Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> that's how it, yeah, she, and, and that's how good she was. She's that good. She, it, there's yeah. nobody like her. Her energy. So anyway, so her support of me, mm. all of a sudden my phone started ringing. It was like, I was accepted. Like now you can produce other people. Now you can produce records. Now you're going to be the, the, the go-to guy as a songwriter. And this was in the nineties. And because of that moment in my life, I've never stopped working. So and, well, everybody and has that moment. That, and not that you, we weren't working to get to that moment. I remember a story you told me, I don't know if you've told on your channel yet is when you first were going to do a session for Mellencamp, and you basically, he came to you and said, you're not ready. Yeah, I'm not on the record. You're not ready. Yeah. And you wanted to play on the record. Yeah. And he said, we're going to bring in another guy to play on the record. Yeah. So you should just stay home. And you, yeah. in your wisdom and humility, said, can I come down and watch the other guy play? Because I want to learn. Yeah. Yeah. That's a life lesson. Well, dude, I was terrified to go home I, with my tail between my legs. And there was no, no way. but you went to him I and did, said, yeah, I'm not I going. might not be there yet in your eyes, yeah. but I will go there yeah. and suck it up yep. and watch to see what that, because I want what he has. Yeah. And, and, and that's about life. You got to show up and you're going to go, what is he doing? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. If you hadn't done that moment, you wouldn't have been. The go-to guy like yeah. for Don was yeah. and all those, all yeah. those, when you start playing on all those yeah. records and everyone's like, you know, and then you get to Jack and Diane, <laughs> you yeah. know, you, you get, you know, all of a sudden I want the guy who played that Phil. Yeah. How do we sample that snare yeah, drum? Yeah, 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 exactly. How do we get that guy? Because yeah. that guy's a powerhouse. Yeah. But you had to humble yourself. Yeah. And we've all been in those moments where you have to just eat crow. What is it? Preparation. And then getting poised, getting to that moment in your life where you, you've done all the, the woodshedding, the homework, and it's lonely and you're in your room and nobody cares and you're doing it because you love it. Yep. And you're playing on a Sunday night for four people. And you literally thank the audience for coming out and you go build Stephanie. And you know, yep. you know, everyone who's yeah. there and everyone's like, oh, does Kenny really have it? Yeah. I had that conversation with my parents, you know, that was a nice dream. Good for you. Yeah. Now what are you going to do? Now what are you going to do? Maybe you should go into TV editing. Maybe that's what you should do. And I was like, nope. Nope. <laughs> that's <laughs> when you know you're doing the right thing because you're, that's not because you're doing it for yourself. And for your, from your heart. That's yeah. who you are. That's your essence. But that's why I connected with you because yeah. when you and I met, because we could talk about the personal side of this, yeah. is that you and I met. And to me, you were like a long lost brother because yeah. we're band guys. We, we would sit in the back of the bus and go, is this a band? 
it's not really a band, is it? <laughs> you know, it's her name on the marquee, but we really want to be, because we come from yeah. that mentality that we have a lot to offer and we care about what we're doing. And you supported me and it was a lot of nurturing unconsciously from mm -hmm. you to me. And to have you, it made me a better musician playing with you. And I learned so much. I'm a little deaf in my left ear because of you, but I learned so much being in a yeah, room you're with on you. on that side. Yeah, my left ear. Well, that symbol, to, we, that one we did, symbol. We used to jam two hours a day before a three-hour show. Yeah. You, me, and Mark, because we loved the music. Yeah, and we jam. would play like Wired and Zeppelin and, you know. But it's so important to have comrades and, and mentors and the irony that you and I bonded on the field and off the field. And then the irony that your parents and my parents became friends at the end of their, both their lives to, in a sense, the last 15 years of their lives, yeah. you know, they would have dinners together because they lived in towns near each other. Yeah. And then your brother, which I never knew you had a twin. <laughs> <laughs> I Kenny has no people. Kenny has an identical twin. Yeah which is the famous story where there was a band that was going through Stockbridge or something and saw you walking down the Bonnie street. Bonnie Raitt's band. Bonnie Raitt's band. And they tackled your brother on the street. Yeah. And they were like, Kenny. And he's like, I'm not Kenny. They're like, shut up, you're Kenny. And he's like, no, I'm John. And cut to my dad, who's in uh, not hospice, but a retirement, you know, uh, assisted living and heard that my father was there and that... He was like, Bob Shanks? Bob Shanks is here? What do you mean he's here? He, and they said, oh, yeah, he's in room seven. And he walked in the room and he said, hi, Bob, I'm John. And my dad was just enough in a foggy state. He was like, no, you're Kenny. My son is John. He's like, no, I'm John. And my dad just didn't get it. He was thought, like, I must be you know, losing my mind because... <laughs> He knew how close we were and maybe he's seeing both, you know, is assimilating and, <laughs> and he was like, no, I'm Kenny's twin brother, John. And all I can tell you is that in the last eight months of my dad's life is your brother, because I couldn't get to my dad during COVID, yeah. is that your brother would visit my dad twice a week and FaceTime me. And so when I couldn't see my dad, that was my only connection with my father near the end of his life. And it was your brother who said, you should come. It's time. It's getting close. And really just helped me through an incredibly difficult period. And it just shows you that how it's all connected. You know, well, you're not, it's insane. It's the, insane. But the love, the love of all that, you know, of your brother and you and your family and my parents and... Yeah. You know, that we're on this journey together. It's musical, musical, personal, personal, spiritually, as a friend, as a, as a co-pilot. It's incredible. And, we, and you know, we're going to keep going and going and going and going and going. Dude, that's like such a heavy story. I think this is a perfect place to say thank you for coming and doing this. Uh, dude, there's so much more I can talk to you about, but this has been great. John. <laughs> Brothers forever. Yes. All right, thanks for doing you're this. Lucky, listen, you're lucky when you find people in your journey of life, and some are clients and some are friends, regardless of whether you're working with them or not. And you are certainly yeah. one of them it's for me. Very few situations like that. Yeah. 
Well, dude, we're going to keep doing this. I mean, I, what else are we going to do? I have no B plan. There is no B plan. This we're is past no plan. the B plan. There is no B plan. This is more about maintenance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just as right. like, you know, be appreciative, be grateful, and carry on. You carry know? on.